Thank you. That is wonderful truth, isn't it? Christ be magnified. May it be said of all of us that that's our, our goal and our intent as uh, we gather in, uh, again, some unusual circumstances that uh, surround us. But uh, I'm glad you're joining us today online. And uh, we, of course, are responding to some of the uh, recent uh, COVID uh, issues here in our congregation and trying to do our best to keep everyone safe and healthy. So I'm glad you've joined us, and uh, this is a special weekend, of course, for our country, as uh, we have come through the weekend of, of um, uh, 9-11. And I'm sure this week, if you've been like I have, it's captured our attention with some of the historical images and, and uh, review and remembrance related to um, that uh, historic day in our nation. And... Uh, certainly, uh, for a generation, if you're 25 or older, you probably have some recollection of that day. And many of us as adults can remember uh, the events of that day very vividly, where we were when we first heard the news and as the day developed and in the days that followed. And uh, just three months or so after uh, that day in 2001, Congress designated that day to be Patriot Day. Uh, to be remembrance and the remembrance of those who died and really a, a broader recollection of those who have served our country, died for our country. And uh, so lots of, lots of images, lots of memories. And I thought it appropriate as we go through this Patriot Day weekend to remember again some of the, some of the uh, things that have made our nation turn back our minds to look again at those who sacrificed for our nation. And in doing so, I hope we'll find it an opportunity to, to recount some of the imagery and some of the things that are there. And I'm going to have to say to the men in the back, I'm going to let you switch to your, um, to your PowerPoint slides. Mine just are not working like we had hoped they would. Okay. We'll let them do that switch. We'll make a, a little bit of a visual here to go through some of the things I think appropriate for our, our intent of uh, Patriot Day weekend. Here's a monument to remember those who died in the War of Independence. This is in Philadelphia, Washington Square, Philadelphia, completed in 1957. The uh, words on the monument read, in unmarked graves within this square lie thousands of unknown soldiers of Washington's army who died from injury and disease due to their involvement in the War of Independence. Just one place for sure of that. We're going to get everything working here, I promise. Have y'all switched? I'm, not, I'm going to have to see where we go here. Our technology always throws some curves at us. Okay. The Alamo, another remembrance. And the... Uh, Remembrance of this fateful day when the Mexican army marched into this small community and after a 13-day siege, basically went in and killed everyone there at the Alamo. Gettysburg, a day that remembers uh, the most deadly day in American history. A battle that lasted three days took the lives of some 50,000 soldiers from the Union and Confederate armies. There's monuments there in that grounds, on that grounds for those who died from North Carolina and from Virginia. 
and um, indeed one of those remembrances moments. The National Monument of World War I, this is in Kansas City, Missouri, and it of course was intended to remember what at that time had been the greatest of all wars that had been known. And this particular one, uh, there you can see with the tower in the middle intended to remember those who died and gave their lives in World War I. Here in Greensboro, uh, we have a, a War Memorial Stadium. Maybe you've passed it or been at it. It's a place I spent a lot of time as a young man. Um, and this also was built in recognition and remembrance of those in World War I. Of course, Valor in the Pacific, the day of Pearl Harbor, um, when uh, America was, of course, unprovoked, unprovoked attacked by the Empire of Japan. The National D-Day Memorial. This is just up in Bedford, Virginia. If you've not been to that, let me encourage you. That's a wonderful day trip uh, to go and see there the imagery that they have put together in recognition. And Bedford, Virginia was selected because it was the community that suffered the most uh, deaths per capita of any community in America on D-Day and through that battle. And they still have um, portraits of the young men who died that day down through their town there. So it's a, it's a great place to go visit, not terribly far away. The Marine Corps Memorial there in Washington, D.C., celebrating the raising of the flag on Mount Siribachi at Iwo Jima. Uh, historic and memorable moment that uh, indeed um, was crucial to America's war in the Pacific. The National World War II Memorial there in Washington. I hope you've had an opportunity to go to that one. That is also uh, quite a stirring event to go and visit and uh, to see the um, and remember uh, what uh, indeed a great war that was for a generation that didn't hear the stories firsthand. This is a great opportunity to go and bring that to their remembrance. The Korean War and the statues there of the men and the soldiers going through that field. The Vietnam Memorial Wall, of course. Um, and there's a, just a real stirring moment just to go through that and see all those names. I think 50,000 plus names uh, on that wall and to see the, rec uh, the recollection tokens that are laid at the base there families who still come by and will lay flowers or small flags in remembrance of their loved one. And of course Arlington, uh, a place that really is a sacred ground in America's history where thousands upon thousands of soldiers are buried on this acreage. They still conduct funerals there. Some 25 to 30 a day, five days a week, are conducted at Arlington of those men and women who served their country and in many cases gave their lives for the freedoms that we remember. And of course you can't go to Arlington without a visit to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and watch the changing of the guard with such reverence and, and um, such respect. It is a, quite a, a heart-captivating moment for sure. Here in Kernersville area locally, if you haven't been to this, go see this. Take your children to this. The Carolina Field of Honor. Uh, is a special memorial designed to recognize uh, the veterans of our state particularly. And uh, it is certainly worth a day visit there to go and walk through and see what they've done. Such a great job. Um, and that's a relatively recent one, just built a few years ago. 
But not just the military, our nation also remembers the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial. This is in Washington, D.C., and um, uh, names are engraved upon stones there of officers who gave their life, uh, dating all the way back to 1791, I believe it is. And there's some 20,000 names that are engraved there of officers who've given their life in the line of duty uh, of our nation's history. There's also the National Fallen Firefighters Memorial. This is in Maryland. And there again, they recognize and remember families whose uh, loved ones in the duty of being a firefighter gave their life. Indeed, there's a lot of things to, to look at and talk about with memorials, but on this Patriot Day weekend, None seems to catch our attention more than the memorial at the Twin Towers, the memorial and museum there, of course. And I'm sure we've all, if you are um, of age to remember that day, have made the comment and at least thought uh, how quickly that 20 years has gone. It seemed like only yesterday that we were still dealing with the aftermath of that. And of course, the memorial itself is highlighted at night when they shine the light beams up to represent those two towers and the lives that are that were so tragically lost there, some 3,000 lives. Indeed, it's a proper thing to remember a memorial uh, of life that was taken uh, in a way that certainly was unpredicted, unanticipated, and life that was innocent in all that was there. And what I want to do today is to have an opportunity to look at how we can... Um, how we can accomplish the things that the Lord has for us in seeing and remembering that freedom is not free. This is from the Korean memorial. And to see that freedom is not free is a recollection of all that the Lord has provided for us as a nation. Individuals who willingly give of their lives to stand for righteousness and freedom, to defend the innocent, and today, multitudes of servicemen and women around the world stand in that very place to be a defense against those which would seek to take away not only our freedom, but take away our lives, our properties, our way of life, and certainly seek to take away what has been a Christian heritage woven in our nation's history. And so to remember freedom is not free is important. Now today I want to take us to a passage in the Old Testament as we get into God's Word. And that passage is in... Uh, Exodus chapter 17. It's a passage that references this image here, and maybe this one's a little more visible to you. This image and this account of the people of Israel as they were in a battle and as they were attacked, I will call it the first terrorist attack. This attack is recorded for us in Exodus 17. So let's set the stage briefly as we get into this passage and look at these verses just quickly. This particular passage is, of course, Israel on its way, having escaped now from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt proper. They have crossed the Red Sea. They are working their way to Mount Sinai. They'll be there in chapter 19. And if you look at a map and kind of put together the landmarks that are given to us in this account, they are somewhere along the southwest edge of the Sinai Peninsula. And in the first part of the chapter, a miracle. God performs a miracle through Moses by bringing water from a rock. And a demonstration of his power and of his intent of sufficiency for what they need is given there. 
But we jump to the middle of the chapter and we catch this account recorded for us. Exodus 17. Let's read the passage. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now Amalek, the Amalekites, we will know them as and read them as quite frequently in the Old Testament, are a people who are enemies of the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, the people of Jacob. And as enemies, they lay in wait. They set a trap, an ambush, if you will. And Israel was not ignorant of this oncoming attack. In verse 9 it says, And Moses says to Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out and fight with Amalek. A militia is needed here. Get the men, Moses instructs Joshua, and prepare for the battle tomorrow. Moses says in the end of verse 9, Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with the Amalek or the Amalekites. Can you envision these two armies? Weapons that are crude by today's standards, arrows, bows, spears, rocks, slings. But nonetheless, the battle rages and the battle ensues. So Joshua goes out to fight the Amalekites with the militia of Israelites that he can pull together. And Moses, along with Aaron and Hur, went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed in the battle. The imagery that's portrayed in pictures like this show what happens as the time goes on and the day passes. Verse 12, Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Moses, as, as any of us would, eventually his stamina just to stand up in this position becomes difficult. So they sit him on a stone. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands. They held them up. You can see, I hope, in the imagery here, one on each side holding up the hands of Moses. And as his hands were held up, they continued, Israel, to continue to win the battle against the Amalekites. And they did so at the end of verse 12. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. For the rest of the day, there they are. Aaron and Hur, one on each side, holding up the arms of Moses. The account continues in verse 13. We're given the results. And Joshua discomfited or defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord says to Moses, write this for a memorial in a book. The Lord intended Moses to write this so that no one would forget. It would be to put in a book that future generations would read. And here we are today reading of it. The Lord says, I will utterly put out the remembrance. I'm sorry, be back up. Verse 14 there. He's still writing a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. Tell Joshua what happened. Joshua's in the middle of the battle. 
For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, or the Amalekites. It was there, at this place, at this turning point in this infant existence of these people called Israelites, that God had performed a wonderful miracle. Think of it. Their soldiers had not been trained. They had not been drilled in the ways of military warfare or military strategy. All they knew was, we're going to take our weapons and we're going to go defend our people. And Moses built an altar there, it says in verse 15. He called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. That's a, if you go look that name up, one of the names ascribed to the Lord, it means the Lord is our banner. The one we look to. Moses in this position on the hill was within sight of the men in the battle. And they could see him and her and Aaron standing there in this position. Indeed, he became the rallying cry, representing the very Lord himself who was making him able to be a point of strength for the army of Israel. The Lord, our banner. He's where we look to to get our strength, our security, our salvation. For he said, this is Moses here, because the Lord has, has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You know, war in human history is indeed from generation to generation. As we glance through those images in the history of our nation, from generation to generation, there have been wars. The War of Independence, even before that. America as a colony was involved in the French and Indian Wars. The War for Independence, the War of 1812, the uh, Mexican War, the Civil War. I mean, on and on it goes. It's a never-ending stop. We, we tend to mark generations by their experience in some type of wartime activity. Today we find ourselves many centuries removed from the events here in Exodus 17, recorded for sometime around 1400 B.C. And yet the reality is there are still those who want to bring the battle, the terrorist attitude. Why was this a terrorist attack? Because they laid in wait. They will no doubt attack the weak. Remember, this was an assembly of people that had the elderly and the children the women, this wasn't a march of an army. This was a population of people. And the attack of the Amalekites was nothing more than, let's destroy as many as we can. Let's kill the innocent. Let's kill the underage. Let's kill the weak. Let's kill the poor. We have no other avenue, no other capacity, was their mindset. We will take our vengeance and our anger out on them. And they will know our wrath. But thanks to the courage of Joshua, the foresight of Moses that the Lord had given him, thanks to the commitment of those who took up arms and that day said, we will defend our people, our families. We will defend our purpose. The Lord blessed them. The Lord gave them that victory. It wasn't without difficulty no doubt the battle raged through the day. There were those who may not have walked away from that battle, 
They may have died in the battle. They may have been wounded. They may have suffered severe casualties. We're not told those details here. But the battle raged through the day. And in the end, the Lord gave the victory. And I want us to think about this Patriot Weekend as we think about a biblical response to 9-11. I use this passage in Exodus just as a starting point. And I'm going to reference some verses without reading every one. We'd be here way too long than any of us would be comfortable doing if we read each one of these verses. So my encouragement to you is don't just listen, maybe write these down. Because we need to have a biblical perspective to what has happened in our nation. Now we are 20 years removed from 9-11. But is there any of us here, any of us who would doubt that there may be another event, there may be another attack, there may be another opportunity where the enemy of America and her freedoms, the enemy of Christian truth and faith, would want to find an opportunity to attack and to lie in wait, to set an ambush. There are those who would like nothing more than to repeat the events of September the 11th, 2001, and even magnify it if possible. And like Moses instructed Joshua to gather the men I am so thankful there are those today who will still take up arms, who will still take up the rally call, not just of defending a nation or a territory, but of defending people, defending truth that's been, in, that's been integrated in our country, defending the reality of the value of every person, defending the gospel teaching of the Bible that is all across our land. I'm thankful there are men and women today who take up that call and who answer the reality of what it means to go at the front line and defend and to tackle the enemy on foreign territory. This was not a battle that was had in a place even these people were familiar with. No doubt they had never been there before. They're a long way from Egypt. They had to go take the battle on foreign territory. And as we think about those events of history and the events that even happened to us in life, unexpected, events that seem to take our breath away at the moment, events that come with the capacity to destroy us even, we need to have a biblical response in our own hearts, I think, first. As parents and grandparents, we will respond to the question of the younger ones around us. But I think we have to settle these issues in our own hearts. And just like the Lord said, tell Joshua what I did today. Write it in a book that other generations will hear. Be faithful to continue this message of truth so that others will know that I am the Lord your God and I have delivered you. We today need to have that same attitude. Part of our responsibility is to help train the next generation to instill in their hearts a reality of who God is and how he is there for us. What does the Bible teach us? So I want to take a moment today, and we'll go through this quickly. Our time will, will fly too quickly if we don't. And again, I'll not take the time to look at verses. I want to make the point. 
And I'll let you have the opportunity to, to go chase down individual verses. The world is corrupted. That particular verse there in Romans 8 talks about the groaning that we see in nature. And even the groaning in our own hearts that we realize we live in a corrupted world. Sin, like rust, is decaying away the very culture around us. Nature itself is echoing that reality of a world that just tends to be quivering and shaking in its own corruption. That corruption, of course, came from the events recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. For when sin entered, it impacted not just the spiritual life of Adam and Eve and all who would follow. It created a curse that would fall upon all of the land, all of the crops, all of earth suffers today because of the impact of sin. The world is corrupted. That's a biblical reality. Next, humans are depraved. Depraved, it simply means unable to do what is right. Unable to even want to do what is right. Depraved at our very core. Why is that true? Because we are all born spiritually dead. Adam and Eve died spiritually at the moment of their rebellion to God. And that spiritual death was passed on to every succeeding generation. And here we are, and today we are still born spiritually dead. Romans 3 reminds us in the verses there that there is none righteous. Every man seeks to do that after his own heart. Our lust is corrupted and corrupting. Psalm 14 talks about the vile existence that is within us. Oh, we, can, we can look good on the outside. We can wear the suits and the clothes. We can be in the nice houses, but within us, there is always that reality that we are born as sinners born depraved. Only by God's grace do we have any hope whatsoever that the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ is provided to us as the greatest of all realities from our depraved condition. Words are not sufficient to describe the capacity of God's extending grace to our corrupted and depraved souls. Humans are depraved. That's a biblical reality. Satan and his powers are real. Ephesians 6 talks about that armor that we put on. That we may be able to stand against the principalities and the powers, the influences of evil. Because we are easy victims to the strength of Satan, were it not for the power of Christ in us. Stand therefore, the passage says, having taken on this armor that you might be able to defend that which is truth, and take with you the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, into this battle. For it's not a battle of flesh and blood, it's a battle of principalities, a spiritual battle. 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us that Satan is that roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Satan is real. The culture and the world we live in today is very content to push Satan aside. We might let him come out on October 31st, but other than that, he's just a fairy tale. They would say he's just something to laugh at. That's not the biblical position at all. Satan is real. He looks to devour innocent lives, either by the hand of vicious and evil men or by, their, by the actions of drugs or alcohol, by the actions of anger and impulsivity. Satan and his power is real, and we have to, we have to come to a biblical reality of that. Evil does exist. Isaiah, and there recorded for us in John, the reality that evil is an integral part of understanding the world around us. You know, that statement to some people's ears is unacceptable. Evil does not exist. After all, we're good people. Just raise us in a better socioeconomic setting. Give us a better education. We need more benefits. We need more money. We need more something, but we're not evil. Again, that's not a biblical truth. The Bible's very clear about the existence of evil. And because of Satan and his power, because evil exists, because of the depravity of humanity, the end result is the innocent are often the victims. Psalms 10 talks about those who fall to the hands of the wicked and the vile, and they are innocent. We think of those lives lost on September the 11th, 2001. We can only think of the fact that they were innocent. They had done what they had done hundreds, maybe thousands of times before, gotten up and prepared their day and went to work. Those who boarded Flight 93, it's just another trip. We'll be there and within a couple of hours. I'll be there by the afternoon to take care of my business. Those who arrived at the Pentagon that morning to enter their office and see their assigned duties and the task that they were to accomplish, they were all innocent. The reality is, the world we live in today gladly takes victim of the innocent. You know, I look at that list, and if we were to stop there, I think we'd be depressed for the rest of the day. We might find ourselves thinking, well, you know, what's the purpose of getting up tomorrow and going to work or going to school? But that's where the good news comes in. The reality is we don't stop there. The Bible doesn't stop there. We don't provide a way for us to say, that's it. Well, I guess we'll just do the best we can and struggle through life. No, the biblical reality is that there's more to be told. So let's look at the other side of what the Bible says. The Lord is on his throne. The psalmist records that the Lord is on his throne. God on his throne, eternity cannot end 
or ever know a moment without God on his throne. Revelation chapter 7 there talks about the multitude gathered around the throne acknowledging the rightful place of God. And on his throne, he sees the universe from a much different perspective than you and I do. He sees the events of historic days like 9-11 from a different perspective than we do. He sees the events in our life from a different perspective than we do. We can rejoice. The Lord is on his throne. He does not step aside or, or cast his authority to others. It is his and his alone, a throne that belongs rightfully to him as the eternal God of the universe. We can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in knowing that God's word is true. You see, God has revealed himself. He has given us a Bible where he has told us about himself and his purposes and his plans. He has told us about us. He has told us about family, children, responsibilities. He's told us about eternity, of heaven or hell. He's told us about his son, Jesus Christ, coming. That none would perish, but that all could come into repentance, into eternal life. God's word is true. Let it be proclaimed from this pulpit as long as this age of grace continues. Would it be that all churches proclaim God's word is true? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we, as followers of Christ, lived as if we truly valued God's word? We hear its principles and precepts. We hear its framework for life. We need to understand that those aren't just ideas, but those are realities of which we can frame our life set our pattern for the way in which we live as we face eternity. God's word is true. I'm glad for that. I'm so thankful for that. What would we have to teach or preach that would be of any value if we had not God's word? Our lives are in God's hands. Psalmist makes that recollection there about we are directed by the Lord. He oversees our ways in life. Romans 14, the Apostle Paul says there, whether we live, if we live, we're living of the Lord. If we die, we're dying of the Lord. So therefore, whether we live or whether we die, we're, we're the Lord's. Our lives are in his hands. He directs us and moves us. He'll nudge us a little this way when needed, and he'll correct us this direction when needed. The Holy Spirit will work in our heart and in our mind to draw us unto Christ in the path that he has established for us. Our lives are in God's hands. We can rejoice in that. The Lord is our refuge. How many verses could be referenced? Psalmist says many times, the Lord is our refuge. The Lord is our refuge in strength, a very present help in the time of storm. He is our refuge. He is our rock. There are so many great images given to us in the scriptures. The Lord is our refuge. We can go to him. We can hide in that cleft of the rock, as a song, the song often says. We can find a place where to be kept from the storm. 
We can find a place in him in the darkness of night. We can find a place in him in those moments where confusion clouds our thinking. Where emotions stir up our, stir up our very soul. We always go back to this refuge, this anchor for the soul that is the Lord himself. Another biblical response, God is our hope. And may that God of hope, there in Romans 15, verse 13, may that God of hope extend to you hope. May it be that we take God's promise and apply it to our lives. You see, hope for the Christian, hope for the follower of Jesus Christ is not a maybe hope so. It's not a, well, you've got a one in five chance. Those are pretty good odds. No, it's not that type of hope at all. It's a type of hope that is a confident expectation. The songwriter said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I only lean on Jesus' name. And that's a reality that our hope our confident expectation is whether to be in the body or out of the body. To be present in this life or to be present with the Lord. We know what God is doing. And that is he's always doing what's right. His judgments are accurate and true. They are righteous. When we think about events like 9-11... It captures our heart to think about the lost life and the families that still are impacted. When we think about the loss of innocent life, when we think about circumstances that we've gone through, situations we find ourselves in, let us take the reality that the Bible has a perspective for us to latch on to. And to cling to God's truth and God's promise is indeed our refuge, our strength, our hope. Oh, indeed, the previous five statements we looked at give us an understanding that these five statements are truly a representation of the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ came to earth to give us life eternal for those who put their faith and trust in him. And as a born-again one into the family of God, we can rejoice over these truths and multitudes of others if we had the time. But let's look at this weekend, the historical event it represents, the patriotic symbolism that surrounds it. But let's look beyond it. Let's look a little deeper into God's Word and to see the truth that indeed God is going to bring about all things for good. Uh, that's a Bible truth also, isn't it? He works all things for our good and for his glory. I trust today that will be a perspective and a response that will find its way into our hearts and in our thinking as we move forward. And as we see the opportunity to serve the Lord and see his hand strong. And just like those men there in the battle with Joshua against the Amalekites, every once in a while I imagine they glanced up Moses is still there. That means God is still with us. 
they looked to a man. And through that man were rallied for the cause of Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is our banner. And that's the banner we run to in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I trust today the Lord will work in your heart. The Holy Spirit will encourage you, and God's Word will impact the way we think and the way we live, that even when we go through challenging times, we can realize the truth of God's Word. I'd like to ask you to bow your head wherever you're at. Most at home, maybe you're somewhere else watching. Right there in this moment where you're at, the Lord hears that prayer of your heart. And I trust that you will thank Him for the provision He's given. If you've been born again, if you're a child of God, I trust you will acknowledge again and recognize in Him the strength and hope, the refuge that He is. I pray that you will do that which is needed and proper and right. As Revelation 7 says, someday we'll stand around the throne and do those things. Why not do it here in this this moment of time. But if you're not born again, if you're not sure of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his son, then the prayer you need to pray is a simple prayer of salvation. Acknowledge you're a sinner. Realize Jesus Christ, God's son, came to earth. His death paid a penalty. Yes, that's the justification that was needed because we're all guilty. We're born sinners. But his death also provides new life, new spiritual life in Christ. And what a wonderful way it is to go through life with Christ as your Lord and Savior. So maybe the prayer you need to pray is a prayer of salvation. Either way, I trust you'll take this moment and lift up that prayer. I'd like to give you a, a, just a moment of silence before I close my time with you in prayer. Dear Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you are on the throne. What do we have to fear when we know that you're in charge of all things? I thank you, Lord, for the truth that's been given to us today in this story of the Amalekites and how you instructed Joshua, uh, Moses to write it in a book and for Joshua to be courageous to go and take the battle. I thank you for the example it gives to us. And while we realize that this is a corrupted world and humans are depraved, that Satan is real, that evil exists and the innocent are often victims, we realize those truths. But we also rejoice to know that you're on your throne. We rejoice to know that your word is true. We rejoice to know that you are our hope, our refuge, our strength. And I pray that you'll Allow us today to come before your throne to offer our, our needs, to offer our praise, to offer to you our lives. That however we live, we may do so in a way that honors you. Pray that you'll bless our congregation, our church today. We're distributed in many different places, but bless each home that's represented. Bless the parents and the grandparents as they are instructing and raising their children. Bless this church as we continue the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior the one truly eternal and the one rightfully due all of our praise. And because it's in his name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful day.